that song has meant uh, so much to me personally over the years. It's really uh, ministered me during some very difficult times in my life, times when my faith was really challenged and stretched to new levels. But God has always proved himself more sufficient and more faithful than I could possibly imagine. And I know many of you this morning know that's true in your own lives. There's nothing quite like seeing the hand of God move in your life, especially when he pulls you out of a situation where nothing seemed to make sense and where you felt a strong sense of insecurity and you you felt doubt and fear and frustration and had so many questions that you just uh, couldn't reconcile in your own mind. And even though those times are difficult and even though they test our faith and test our uh, perseverance, as we mature in our faith, we look back at those times with gratitude. And we look back and say, God, you shaped my heart and my mind and you gave me fresh evidence of just how good you really are. Now, our text of the morning in Acts chapter 9 really is an affirmation of what the choir just sang. Uh, So let's take our Bibles and turn there, Acts chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 10 in just a couple minutes. I was thinking this week what a strange experience it must have been for the apostles when they heard about this man, Saul, who had had his heart turned by Christ, not only... Uh, not, not because they didn't believe that God's grace is that transformative, that God couldn't take a life like Saul's or a life like Jim's and completely transform it and change it. Not because they didn't believe that or, or because they uh, had something against Paul, but because Paul, Saul's opposition had been so violently relentless. As he had sought Christians, as he had gone after the church, as he had persecuted people who named the name of Jesus Christ. He had been ruthless in his determination to stop the advance of the gospel. And he had measured his success by how many Christians he could throw in jail and even better, by how many Christians he could kill. He was that determined. He was that uh, set in his heart that Christianity had to be stopped. So he goes about this, this violent crusade of trying to damage and hinder and stop uh, the name of Jesus Christ. And he was the chief persecutor. His reputation was known throughout the area. For, for probably 100 miles or more, people knew the name of Saul of Tarsus. They knew how he was on this campaign to hurt Christianity. So it would have, wouldn't have been unusual for those who were following Christ when they heard that he had been saved, that he heard that, that Christ had changed his heart, for them to feel a a little bit of apprehension, a little sense that maybe this was a trick. And maybe somehow uh, Saul had designed this so he could infiltrate the inner circle, get to know the people that were Christians, and do even more damage uh, internally inside Christianity. So when he's saved, when he starts meeting believers, he's not really immediately embraced by others. He doesn't have people flocking to him and saying, isn't this great? In fact, the text uh, and Galatians 1 and other texts tell us that even after three years, even the main disciples of Christ were hesitant. Even they were fearful to believe that he was an authentic believer. Now, it's easy for us, even as believers, even as those who trust in the name of Jesus Christ, it is easy for our minds 
to be confused by fear. Even when that fear seems very legitimate. And I thought this week, what is it about worry and fear that we love to hold on to? Sometimes it's even more comforting for us to to hold on to our worry and to be afraid and to isolate ourselves than it is to rest in the Lord. And we hear the words of that song. We hear uh, joy comes in the morning and troubles don't always last. But, and we cognitively, as Christians, know that that's true, but we can't quite let go of the fear. Part of the problem is that we tend to only look at the external to determine how much we're going to trust the Lord and how much we're going to proceed by faith instead of seeing what God is revealing to us through his word and through his spirit. Because if we see what God reveals to us through his word and through his spirit, it gives us a fresh understanding and a courage and a wisdom and a strength and a faith. But fear impedes our understanding of what God's doing because fear causes us to focus our minds on ourselves and to look at the problem rather than depending on God's faithfulness. There's so many ways that God teaches us. So many ways that God reveals to us, here's what I'm doing Here's what I want to take you on. Here's how I'm guiding you. Even though it looks difficult, even though it's a challenge, even though you're not going to want to trust me because it's scary. Here's what I'm taking you on. Here's what I've designed for you to make you more perfect and complete. And part of the maturation process as Christians is to learn to recognize what he's doing and to learn to trust in his leading. Now, this text in Acts 9 speaks to that spiritual principle. Because between verses 10 and verse 31, there are four different groups of people who react negatively to what has happened in Saul's life. One group, it's to be understood, because his salvation is damaging their plans to hinder the gospel. But for the other three groups, they're believers who initially don't see through the eyes of what God is doing and through eyes of confident faith that the Lord is doing something to advance his name. So let's read through the text. We read some of it last week, but we didn't really study it. Let's start in chapter 9 and verse 10 and read down to verse 31. Now there was a disciple at Damascus. This was somebody that had been saved a while named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming, come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem, and how he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. 
Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed, verse 21, and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him. And, and uh, now how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving freely around in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. Those were the Jews that had been influenced by Greek Gnosticism. But they were attempting to put him to death. When the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Now, after Paul's heart is changed, verses 1 to 9, on the road to Damascus, he's led to the city because, remember, he's blind. And for three days, he doesn't eat or drink anything. His heart is being prepared, and he's preparing himself. Try to imagine what he's going through and what he's thinking at this time. Try to place yourself in, in his mindset as he sits there, no real idea yet of just how fully the Lord's going to use him. He's been told to go to Damascus. Acts 26 says the Lord gave him a sense of the commission that he was giving him. But, but as he's sitting here in darkness, imagine what he's feeling. Imagine the guilt and the shame and the regret of persecuting Christians. Imagine in his mind seeing the face of Stephen as he was stoned looking up into heaven and saying, I see the Lord standing there in heaven and watching as the rocks continue to pelt him and hit him in the head and then as he fell down and died. Imagine in his mind the thoughts of going around and dragging Christians, men and women and children out of their homes, taking joy as they were killed, watching them be put into prison, rubbing his hands together with, with excitement that he had put more of them away. Imagine him thinking about the determination with which he had gone toward Damascus until that light came and he heard the voice of Jesus. What did he wonder about how the disciples would react? How did he feel gripped with some degree maybe of, of fear and anxiety of, of what they'd say to him and, and, and whether they'd be uptight and would they accept him? And yet at the same time as he's feeling all this guilt and shame and fear, he's also experiencing the spiritual freedom of new life in Christ. And he recognizes what God's done in his life. He was walking on the road to Damascus to go find Christians to persecute them. Now he's one of them. And now he has a commission to, to go out because God has said, your job now is to preach to the Gentiles. 
and his heart starts to fill with confidence and with encouragement and excitement about what was going to happen. And he knows that God's working because God has said there's going to be a man. Going to be a man named Ananias and he's going to find you and he's going to restore your sight. What he didn't know at this point is that Ananias wasn't real excited to meet him. This man that God was sending that he had told him about in the vision that God had given very detailed instructions to in his own vision. He's got real serious reservations about the assignment. He doesn't really want to go find Saul because he knew about Saul. And he knew what he had done in Jerusalem to the Christians. And he knew why he had come to Damascus. And he knew that, that he had some authority to root out the Christians. Ananias had been saved for a while. He was not a new convert. He was someone who had influence in, in Damascus in terms of Christianity. So he knows that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, he is at risk too. So he essentially, look at the text, he essentially asked the Lord what every single one of us would ask. Are you sure? Lord, are you sure? I've heard about this guy. I know about him. You sure you want me to go find him? Because he has the authority to arrest and even kill anyone who calls on your name. I want you to see in the text, very interesting insight. Notice in verse 13 and verse 14 just how simple and honest this prayer is. There's a lot for us to be encouraged by just in those verses because we learn about the true nature of prayer. Ananias is talking to the Lord of all, the King of kings, the God of creation, the one who made the sun shine across that beautiful lake this morning, the one who sets everything in order, the one who has control over all things, and yet he comes to him and he humbly lets his requests be made known. There's no sense of pretense. There's no sense of entitlement. There's no sense of of hesitation. He just goes to the Lord and said, Lord, here's what's on my heart and mind. Now, this is what prayer really is. Prayer is confident communication with the Lord, knowing that he is sovereign and gracious and faithful all at the same time and that he knows our fears, and that he's acquainted with our griefs because Jesus was tempted just like we are, and that when we can go to him, he understands. But notice the second part of it. The Lord doesn't allow our fears and our reasonable hesitations to become a license to doubt and disobey his word. We can go to him and say, Lord, I'm scared. Lord, I don't know what to do. Lord, are you sure? But God doesn't say, oh, it's fine, just live in your fear. He says, no, I'm God. I've given you an assignment. Go do it. This is my word. The word of the Lord is good. I know what's best for you. I know the plans I have for you. They're plans to do more than you could ever possibly think. So I'm not being mean here, but do what I say. Now, Ananias' objection isn't because... He doesn't think Saul deserves God's mercy. Notice this. It's not because he doesn't want to minister to somebody who killed Christians. It's because he's scared for his life. But the Lord wants him to experience the greatness of his work 
and to be part of the spiritual transformation that's going on in Saul's life and this transition to ministry. So he doesn't bring Saul to Ananias. Oh, every word's important. He says, go find him. He doesn't say, hey, somebody's going to be knocking at your door in 10 minutes and you need to minister to him because I'm going to put it on your turf. I'm going to make it so it's comfortable for you. He'll come to you. I'll take care of it. You don't have to worry. You're in the security of your own home. He says, you go find him. You go search him out and find him. You're to go look for the person who's causing the most trouble for Christianity of anyone at this point. Now, the Lord is about to give Ananias two very convincing reasons why he has to go. But before we look at those, I want you to look back at the text because there are some very particular details that the Spirit includes. And when you and I are struggling to know what the Lord is doing and to discern that, and when we're feeling some hesitation in our spirit about whether we should trust the Lord, whether we should obey His Word, we can look at His Word and we can find pieces of extra evidence that remind us just how incredible and how faithful He is. I want you to know this. This is so key about the Word of God. If you come and take that How to Study the Bible 242 course that we're going to offer, this is one of the concepts that we'll spend time doing, examining the details of the text. Because how many know the Holy Spirit doesn't waste any words? He doesn't just throw in words for his amusement and say, well, I'll throw in this detail, but it doesn't really matter. I, I, I'm just, I, I just had some extra time on my hands, so I thought I'd write more. Every word that he includes is important. Every word has meaning. Every word is important to our understanding of what he's teaching us. If for nothing else than to say, my word is true and my instruction is right and my leading is perfect. So when we look at verses 11 to 12 here, because that's where the Lord's giving Ananias the instructions that he doesn't want to follow, we see very interesting specifics. And some of them are kind of what I would say would be subtle metaphors, things that might or might not be something where the Spirit's kind of saying, here's a little extra detail just to encourage you. And some of them are are very clear affirmations. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's look at some of the kind of subtle metaphors. He says, I want you to go find him on the street called Straight. We've got pictures of that. Guys, if you would be willing to put that one up. This is the entrance even today to the street called Straight. This is a street that runs the length of Damascus. At the time, it was about a mile long. Now it's about a half mile long. That, That was kind of the main thoroughfare. Everybody in Damascus would have known the street called Straight. So, so why does God say it to Ananias like it's some kind of thing where he has to get on MapQuest and, and find out where it is? Why is it a detail that he's on the street called straight? You can put up the next picture if you don't mind. Well, this is kind of a nuanced confirmation that, that Saul's conversion is authentic. What does the Bible tell us? There is a way that is wide and everybody wants to go on it, but the way of life is narrow. And I think there's something very subtle here that the Spirit is saying. He wasn't on the street called Crooked. He wasn't on the street called Damascus Boulevard. He was on the street called Straight. Why? The Spirit's just affirming. 
And then it says in the text that he was at the house of a man named Judas. Well, what do we know about the name Judas? The one who betrayed Christ. The one who for 30 pieces of silver sold Christ to the Pharisees so they could kill him. Well, isn't it ironic that now the place where he's going to find the one who's going to be the evangelist of Jesus Christ is at a man, a house of a man named Judas. How God turns what man meant for evil into good. It's not the same guy, but isn't it fascinating that his name is Judas and that Saul is there waiting for the commission to reach people for Christ? These are the kinds of little details that you look at and go, Maybe the Spirit is saying something there to reinforce this. But, but beyond the nuances, look at what we see as definitive validation of God's Word. Because the Spirit is very direct too. Look back at verse 11. The first detail given about Saul is that he's praying. Don't glide over that fact. It's not coincidental. You'll find this man Saul and he will be praying. In verse 1, it said that Saul was doing what? (sighs) He was breathing threats. He was breathing murder against Christians. But now we're told that the confirmation of his sincerity is that he's calling on the Lord in prayer. Now I say, well, that's not unusual, Paul. He was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees loved to pray. The Bible says they loved to make a show of themselves, and they'd walk around with their bells and their phylacteries, And they would make big gestures and pray. Okay, that's true. But nobody's watching at this point. Paul's not out in the street of Damascus saying, I am a Pharisee and I'm going to pray now. Everybody bow. He is in this place, a stranger's house, blinded, humbling himself before the Lord, repenting, Resting in the presence of the Lord, waiting for God's leading. Not only would that fact alleviate Ananias of his hesitation to go and find Saul, but it was an amazing testament to God's mercy and God's forgiveness. This man had been the enemy of Jesus Christ. He was killing Christians. He was fighting the gospel. He was standing against the name of Jesus Christ. And now the Lord is answering his prayer. How many know that the Lord is gracious and compassionate? God is gracious and compassionate. Why would we ever be hesitant to call on his name? Why would we ever fail to trust him when he instructs us and leads us? If he can take Saul, who was murderous in his intent against the gospel, and answer his prayer, he can answer anybody's prayer when they call on him for mercy. And God doesn't stop there. He says, Ananias, here are two strong statements about Saul that prove the plans I have for him. Look at the text. One is in verse 15. He says, Saul is my chosen instrument. Just as he has been the strongest, most vocal opponent of the gospel, now I have made him the strongest and most vocal proponent of the gospel, and I'm going to send him to the Gentiles and to the Jews. This is the power of my grace. The one who breathes threats against me will be the one who evangelizes and preaches my name. And what will distinguish him 
and validate his conversion is that he will love Jesus Christ and he will bear his name to the world. Because when you stand for the name of Christ, there is no hiding your convictions. You need to hear that because that's not an easy sentence. When you and I stand for the name of Jesus Christ, there is no hiding our convictions. And people are going to hate us, and they're going to criticize us, and they're going to oppose us. And when we stand for him and declare his name, they're going to reject us and say that we're awful. If you don't believe that, go home and look at the press coverage this week of Franklin Graham and Kirk Cameron and Tim Tebow. When they have stood for what is biblically right and they've gotten ripped apart for it. Saul was set apart to present Jesus Christ to the world. And that was all Ananias needed to know to go find him. But, but God says, I'll give you another confirmation. This is in verse 16. He's going to suffer for my name. Now that seems like a strange confirmation. He's going to be praying, and he's the one I've set apart to preach my name and to bear my name to the Gentiles and the Jews. All right, great. And, and, and the third thing is, he's going to really suffer for now, that hasn't happened yet. So what does it teach us? It teaches us, first, that there are consequences to our sin. Even though we are covered by God's grace, even though our sins are forgiven, even though our sins are removed forever, even though nothing can separate us from the love of God, there are consequences to our sin. Now, there is an increasingly popular teaching within Christianity that we can practice our liberty without concern for God's discipline because we're redeemed and we can't lose our salvation. But Acts 9 argues that even the greatest apostle had to suffer greatly for uh, partly as a result of what he had done in his past life. Saul had happily murdered Christians. And while God's not being punitive and harsh here, he does allow Saul to go through a stoning, a shipwreck, a snake bite, personal rejection, and prison. Why did he do that? He did that to keep Paul humble. He did that to, so Paul would learn the power and sufficiency of the Lord so he can say in Philippians 3, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered all things and count them rubbish, they're dirt so I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul went through those difficulties. God said, you're going to suffer for my name. You're going to stand for my name. You're going to suffer for my name. Because Jesus said, they'll hate you because they hate me. So the more you stand for them, the more they're going to despise you. And Paul says, look, I'm not angry about it. I don't say, well, God, that wasn't fair because you punished me and because of all the things I had done. This is great. This is the value of knowing you. Everything I've done is rubbish. I wish I could use a stronger word, but I won't. 
Rubbish is strong enough. It's rubbish. It's garbage. It's filth compared to knowing Christ. Oh, because he filled me with his power and he, by his resurrection, has saved me. And now I'm in the fellowship of his sufferings. Then praise God because people are getting saved because of it. Now look back at the text, verse 17 for a minute. It's interesting that after the Lord lays out those reasons, Ananias doesn't say another word of objection. The word of the Lord was enough. And church, the word of the Lord is enough. The word of the Lord is enough. When we study God's word, it overcomes all our fears and we realize the surpassing greatness of his power to change lives and to lead us exactly where we need to go. So Ananias goes, look at verse 17. He goes and he departs and he enters the house and after laying on hands, he says, Brother Saul. Immediately he says, you're one of us. And he ministers to Saul spiritually and he introduces him to other believers who strengthen and encourage him spiritually. And then Saul takes three months off. Is that what the text says? He immediately, not a coincidental word there, he immediately begins to go and proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. And what do we know about the synagogues? That's where Paul was, Saul was headed. Why? Because he wanted to root out all the Christians. And he's got his letter from the high priest. Hey, 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 I got high priest letters here. Get the Christians. Come on, get them out. Now he shows up. I I don't need the letters. I got something else. Jesus Christ is Lord. What? No, I'm not serious. Jesus Christ is Lord. He goes, oh, this is so important. And he preaches Christ. He preaches Christ. Look at it. Verse 20. He says he is the son of God. Verse 22. He proclaims and proves that Jesus is the Christ. Again and again, he preaches Christ. Now, if anybody had a story to tell, it was him. But he doesn't go in and say, oh, let me tell you about me. He says, let me tell you about Christ. And that was his priority from the first day. And he never wavered from it. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, "Uh uh-uh, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ as Lord. That is a priority that too many churches have forgotten. I can promise you that this church will never deviate from it. We are going to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And look at the reaction in verse 21. It says, all who heard him were amazed. I love the Greek word here. The Greek word means... They were almost out of their minds with astonishment. Picture that. I won't make the face because you'll laugh at me. They were, they were like, what? All right, what? They were just, they were, they, there were no words. Because they recognize him as the one who had come to to destroy people. The one who had attacked people that said Jesus Christ 
is Savior and Lord. And all of a sudden now, he's declaring Christ. I guarantee you, this was more powerful than the disciples speaking in other languages at Pentecost. I guarantee you, this had more effect than somebody speaking in French or in German or in Lithuanian. Because this was the undeniable evidence that a heart had been changed. And there is nothing, listen, there is nothing more powerful than the fact of a life that has obviously been transformed by the love and mercy of God. We concentrate on so many other things. We get all worked up about all the other things that that are evidence. Listen, there is no greater evidence than my life is different. So don't get caught up. Don't get caught up in all those other things. That's Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 13.1. He says, all the spiritual gifts in the world mean nothing if you can't follow the greatest commandment to love the Lord with all your heart and to love other people like you love yourself. It's Paul's, it's James's point in chapter 2. He says, listen, if you want to prove you trust Christ, live a holy, sanctified, set-apart life that models Christ. Don't get caught up in all the other stuff. I want to tell you, there is absolutely no one that will be out of their mind about your gifts. No one. I don't care how good you preach. I don't care how good you sing. I don't care whether you've got spiritual gifts. I don't care whether you speak in tongues. I don't care whether you heal people. I don't care what you do. There is nothing that will make people be out of their minds about that. What will make people out of their minds and amazed is the living proof of Christ's ownership in your life. Then people will go, oh, I don't get it. What is going on with you? You can fake all those other things. You can learn to preach. You can go to opera school and learn how to sing. That's great. Do that. God bless you. I'm not going. But you cannot fake true transformation. That's what made Saul's gift even more effective. And that's why he confounded the Jews. And that's why he proved to them, listen, the anointed one from heaven that you rejected, that was the son of God. And they're so angry about it. And what what irony that is, because they're the ones who wanted them there in the first place. Now they want to kill him. So they watch the city gates day and night. Look at the text. And they wait to ambush him. But the believers who hadn't wanted them in the first place and would have done anything to avoid him, now they're helping him escape. Isn't it amazing how quickly loyalties change when someone starts to follow Christ? Look at the pictures real quick, if you don't mind, guys, about the walls of Damascus. This is what it looks like. This is a very typical scene of where they would have released him. We have another picture for you. This is how sheer it was. They're watching the gates. They're waiting day and night for him to come. They want to kill him, so the disciples lower him down in a basket over the wall, and Saul gets away. Now, let's finish up here. Between verses 22 and 23, there's a three-year gap. Because Paul says in Galatians 1.16 that after his conversion, after he left Damascus, he went to Arabia. And for three years, he was in Arabia. But after that, verse 23 picks this up. 
he, he finally makes his way to Jerusalem. And the last time he had been there, was a very different person. Last time he had been there, he was very proud of being a Pharisee. He was very passionate about pursuing and persecuting Christians. He was breathing fire in his quest to stop the gospel. And now he returns and he's humbled by God's mercy. And the only thing he's passionate about is Jesus Christ. And his singular purpose is to advance the gospel so people can be saved like him. But even after all of that, when he comes to town and he wants to meet with the disciples, verse 26 says that they were all afraid of him. Because they were nervous. Maybe he's not a real disciple. Actually, he's more than a disciple. Actually, his calling is probably above any of them. But he's not coming into town, strutting around, saying, look at me. Here I am. I'm the one who's anointed by God to preach to the Gentiles. He just comes and he wants to fit in. Hey, I just just want to join up with you guys. Just want to visit with you. Want to get to know you. So I'm a little nervous about this. I know uh, my reputation precedes me, but God's changed me. Could, I, could, could we arrange a, a church service? I'd like, to, I'd like to just come to church. And everyone's scared. Because they haven't been able to follow his ministry on a website. They haven't been able to download his messages and hear whether he's authentic. And there's been a three-year gap, and maybe they think, well, th- this was fake. God had told them to test the Spirit, so, so they were justifiably hesitant. But it's still surprising to see them resist accepting him until, we see this in verse 27, Barnabas steps in. Barnabas was the son of encouragement. The son of encouragement. There are few people more needed in churches than people who will be sons and daughters of encouragement. Somebody just comes along and says, look, we got conflict here. Let, let, let's let's bring it together. Let's let's talk. Let's pray. You're hurting. Let me just let me just come along. Let me just pray for you. Let me just come alongside you and encourage you. Hey, come on over here. Let's pray for our brother. He's hurting right. Hey, sister, sister, come minister here. Can you imagine? And I think our church is. But can you imagine if this church was filled with sons and daughters of encouragement? So much easier to be sons and daughters of discouragement. Barnabas has the spiritual wisdom not only to discern that Saul is genuine, but also to see the problem if the disciples don't accept him and they don't recognize that God is, has his hand on him. So what does he do? He grabs Saul. That's literally what the text says. He grabs Saul and he takes him right to the disciples. Can you imagine the scene at the door? Knock, 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 knock. Open the door. Hey, Barnabas, what's happening? And there's Saul kind of in the background sheepishly. What's he doing here? Open the door, you guys. Come on. You think Barnabas said, you guys? I don't know. I'm thinking maybe. Come on. Open the door. This is our brother, Brother Saul. God has done an amazing work in his life. And they open the door and they come in and they sit down. And Barnabas, this is our conclusion. He makes the case to validate Saul's faith. And in his words, let's close with this. We see four excellent guidelines to know when a believer or a pastor or a ministry is authentic. If we're supposed to, as believers, test the spirits 
to, to, to have spiritual discernment to know what's of the Lord and what's of man. And there are four qualities we're given here in this text that, that are great guidelines for us. How did Barnabas convince them, hey, it's on the up and up. He is really a believer. He is really saved. God's got his hand on him. How does he know that? First of all, Paul was humble. He was humble. He didn't come into town. He didn't draw attention to himself. He didn't talk about a special conversion. He didn't say, well, I'm called and you're not. He didn't say, oh, look how many people have attended my meetings and how many people have gotten saved. He didn't do that. He was modest. He was almost a little bit reserved. In fact, it's interesting for someone that was so articulate and so confident that Barnabas is the one who explains what had happened. Barnabas says, let me tell you what happened to our brother here. Saul doesn't, it'll say, Saul, come on, give us your testimony. And they, and they sit him and, and they have the holy circle. You know how we do in churches? We have the holy circle where we sit around him and he sits in the middle and has to give his testimony. Uh, he sits there while Barnabas conveys all that's happened. Saul is humble. I encourage you to use this criteria. When you listen to pastors, singers, writers, because it will almost always give you insight into their heart. I remember my brother who works at Brooklyn Tabernacle. They had a very influential, famous pastor come in. And I said to him on the phone, I said, well, what did you think? He said, well, he's a good speaker. But he said, he's humble, so God will bless him. And I thought, that's really the, the most important criteria. Saul was humble. Second, would you look at it? Saul always emphasized what Christ had done in his life. He described how Christ had met him and convicted him and saved him. And in all his writing in the New Testament, Christ is the focus. Salvation by faith in Christ is the emphasis. Romans 5 to 8, Galatians 2, Ephesians 2. These are all the primary examples of how fixated Saul was with teaching people about their need to trust in Christ alone. Christ was preeminent. He always talked about what Christ had done. And third, he boldly defended the name of Jesus to everybody. In verse 20, he preaches Jesus in the Damascus synagogue. In verse 22, he argues and overwhelms the Jews by proving Christ. In verse 28, he goes all over Jerusalem preaching Christ. In verse 29, he goes after the Gnostic belief of these Greek Jews. And he says, no, it's Jesus Christ. And then he goes to Caesarea, which is up on the coast. And then he goes back home to Tarsus. And then he goes on three missionary journeys. And at every stop, guess what he preached? Christ. If you want to know how to tell if someone really loves the Lord and really trusts in the Lord, they'll talk about Christ. Not about themselves, not about other things. They'll talk about Christ. What has Jesus done in my life? How is the Lord sustaining me? How is God ministering? Oh, his grace is so good. Oh, his goodness is so everlasting. Do you know about him? Do you love Christ too? Because I love Christ. 
And then fourth, and finally, Saul brought strength and courage and peace to the body. Some of that was a result was the fact that he wasn't killing people anymore. But even after he left, notice this. Again, this is not an insignificant detail. Because of what Christ had done, and because he was humble and talked about Christ and defended Christ, the church was affirmed and empowered by his boldness and his faith. And listen, that really should be the effect that each of us has on the body. To edify, to build up, to strengthen, to bring comfort and peace, to stir each other to love the Lord and fear the Lord more and more. If we want the church to increase in the right way, like it does in Acts 2 and in Acts 4 and here in Acts 9.31, that is the best way for it to happen. Not strategy, not marketing, not philosophical changes, just people who love the Lord and talk about Christ and build each other up and mature each other in faith. It's simple. Church is simple. And we've made it so complicated. And all we have to do is love the Lord and talk about the Lord and encourage each other to love the Lord. And if we do that, God will give the increase. Let's close our eyes. Is that what you want to be this morning? Is that what you are now? This morning, are you gripped by fear and anxiety and hesitation? Are you caught up in yourself? I know it seems justifiable. I know it seems reasonable. Maybe it is. But like with Ananias, God doesn't want us to stay there. And like with Saul, he wants to do a work of transformation in our lives so he can use us in powerful ways. And, and I pray for you this morning, I pray for myself this morning, I pray for our church this morning, that that's what we want to be. I keep saying it and I keep believing it. God wants to do an amazing work in our midst. And I want to encourage you this morning to release to him anything, anything that is holding that back from happening in your life. Because if he can take Saul's life and change it this dramatically, imagine what he can do in your life. He has far less obstacles to deal with than he did with Saul. And yet don't think this morning that he can't do the same type of powerful work in your life. So this morning, I encourage you, just go before the Lord and say, Lord, whatever's hindering me, whatever's holding me back, I want to get rid of it. I'm ready. I don't know what that means. It's a little scary, but I'm ready. Lord, this morning, we praise you and we exalt you, the creator, the sustainer, the savior, the Lord of all. Yet, Lord, as little specks in the infinite realm of the universe, you love to hear our prayers. And you 
love us enough that you would send your own son to die for us. And you give us your spirit to teach us and sustain us. Lord, there are no reasonable objections for us not to follow you this morning. So I pray you would give us courage and I pray you would give us confidence and I pray you would give us wisdom to know that you are at work. Lord, break down this morning the barriers that we have set up that would hinder you from working in powerful ways. Alleviate the fear that we have even when it's legitimate. Alleviate the fear so our hearts are not inwardly focused, but we're focused on your greatness and your sufficiency. And Lord, we ask you this morning, in our lives and as a church, do a powerful, powerful work. Give us influence, Lord, to reach people for Christ and nothing else. That your name would be proclaimed. That we would bear your name and declare your name as the Savior of all. Father, I pray for this body. I pray for this church that you would lead us clearly. You would give us wisdom. You would give us confidence. And that we would follow you faithfully. Lord, even down to the generations that we hear as we pray, being ministered to and talking about you, Lord, affect their lives, our youth group, our children. Show them your love. We thank you and praise you, Lord. You're so good to us. We exalt you. We magnify you this morning. You're good and you're gracious and you're loving and you're patient and we praise you. We praise you. And we declare our love for you, Lord, because you first loved us. We thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior.